Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Connor. Uh, we are joined here today by David Christinger, um, and we're going to talk about your book, The Soldier's Truth, um, Ernie Pyle and the Story of World War II. Um, David, I know you from the Harris School at U Chicago, um, but that's about the only way I know you. So I'm wondering, uh, who are you? How'd you end up at U Chicago, and uh, what's your role at uh, U Chicago right now? Uh, yes, Connor, great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm 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 honored to to be on the podcast to talk about this book. Um, well, how did I end up at the University of Chicago? It was kind of a fluke, to be totally honest. Um, when I was in college, I went to a small state school and, uh, in Wisconsin, where you know they were more likely to produce um, high school teachers of history than, than professional historians. Uh, but I got bit by the professional historian bug uh, in my sophomore seminar class where, you know, really learned how to do what a, what a historian does. Um, and I think I always had this sort of naive understanding of history in, in terms of like, you know, there were all these dates and people and things to memorize and to sort of weave together. Um, but not really appreciating like where does all that knowledge come from? Like how do we know that is true? Um, and I and I learned that in that sophomore seminar and and learned about archival research and about you know synthesizing different kinds of sources and you know doing that's really kind of qualitative data analysis is what we call it today. Um, and so I uh, decided I wanted to get a PhD in history wanted to be a historian. I wanted to uh, teach history classes at a, at a school in the Midwest and write books. And that was, that was what my 20 year old self decided. Um, and then I applied f- to graduate school. I think the worst time since like last year during COVID, um, I applied right at the height of the financial crisis uh, that started in 2007, 2008. So, you know, it was like every PhD program was suddenly not accepting anybody because they just didn't have the funding for it. And I remember that spring getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And that was when they mailed them to you and they were like, you know, you had to wait. They didn't, you didn't get emailed. You, there was no app to download, you know, and I'm just getting rejection after rejection, the stock market's tumbling. I'm thinking like, you know, good thing I, I worked construction in college because at least I can like maybe find a job. So I, oh wait, the housing is also collapsing. You know, it was just like everything was collapsing. And then I got a, I got an acceptance offer from the University of Chicago. Um, and it was t- into their, their master's program uh, in the social sciences. And it was sort of billed as this Hey, PhD, you know, the PhD market got hit really hard, but we have this master's program that's kind of designed to, you know, get you ready for a PhD. And they had this like huge uh, acceptance rate for, for PhDs. And I thought, okay, maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe the timing wasn't right. I'll do this program. It was a year long um, and you had to write a thesis and I did both in a year, finished up and I'm, you know, preparing my PhD applications. And um, my advisor at the time, uh, his name was Michael Geyer, a brilliant historian from Germany. Um, He told me that I should take my master's degree. The words they used was take your master's degree and run. 
um, before you have a PhD hanging around your neck, uh, like a weight. And he, he, he had this very, it wasn't like I wasn't good enough. It was like the market is never going to do what it should. And like historians are not going to be valued in the future. Right. And, and, and then you start to see, like, there was just an article like a week ago, I think um, I saw the the headline. I can't remember which outlet it was, but it was like, you know, the death of the English major major. And it was like English majors and history majors across the country, but especially in the Midwest, they're just, you know, the numbers are, are going down, 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 down. Okay. So I, so I picked this like, you know, thriving career path. Right. Um, and I had no plan B. I didn't know what I would do if I wasn't going to be a historian. And um, my advisor told me that the government accountability office, the U.S. government accountability office, was going to be on campus recruiting at the Harris School and that I should go check them out because maybe I could be some kind of policy analyst. And, um, and he said that a lot of academics went to GAO and worked there and were very happy there. I had never heard of GAO before this. In fact, I remember thinking that it was a joke when he told me that, like, government accountability, what, what do you mean? Like, where's that, right? Um, but I went to their talk. It was at the old building um, down uh, uh, west on, on 60th. Um, and the two speakers were from the Chicago field office. And they were talking about what their interns do and what their, you know, sort of band one um, analysts do. And I remember sitting there thinking, holy cow, like they're, they're doing the same kind of work that I was, you know, being taught how to do archival research, um, ethnographies, um, literature reviews, you know, all these things, they're doing it sort of in this like contemporary real time scenario, right? They're, they're sort of capturing history is how, is how I saw it. Right. And, um, and, and I remember thinking, yeah, I, sh- I need, I should do this. This is, this would be great. And at the end, uh, the one gentleman that was leading, he said, you know, is there anybody here who's not a policy student? And I, I remember raising my hand and being the only one I, the, in my memory, I was the only one. And so they, so they of course like picked on me and they're like, Hey, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I study German history. And they said their, their eyes got this big and they're like, there's actually two guys that work for us that used to be German historians. And now they're called communication specialists. And you should, you should totally check that out. And like afterwards they gave me their card and I emailed them and I got connected. And and sure enough, there were these two guys who had their PhDs in German history specifically who worked at the government accountability office as communication specialists. And the way the job was explained to me was we were to be attached to teams of policy analysts, economists, statisticians, methodology experts, right? And our job was to like help them come up with good research questions, help them um, organize their evidence into a coherent narrative, you know, give help them find structure in what they were trying to convey to our, our main audience is the U.S. Congress. But the secondary audience is the federal government, the, especially the executive branch, um, and then also like the public and journalists and, you know, politicians and advocates. And, and I started working there right at the time that the federal government was, was expanding in a lot of ways. Um, healthcare was, was being debated. Uh, the Tea Party movement started. 
you know, that was famously the 2010, you know, midterms when the Democrats got shellacked in Obama's words. I was there for all of that. Um, and and I, I, over the course of six or seven years, um, got really good at helping really smart people figure out how to communicate really complex information in a simple way so that so that a, a reader who did not have a degree in economics could still understand it. And I started teaching at Johns Hopkins University in the summertime. I, I taught this kind of boot camp class for their their new um, uh, MPH and MPP students to like help them learn how to how to do this kind of writing before they went into the classroom, and that led to writing a, basically a textbook um, for that class, which Johns Hopkins University Press published. Um, and so I was sort of um, carving out this niche of, you know, I'm really good at helping people learn how to write and, and helping them learn specifically how to write in public policy where where the goal, you know, can be everything from uh, educating a reader to entertaining them in some way, right? Um, and so I did that for, for, like I said, six, seven years. I got promoted into the um, the executive level of the agency and I was working in the strategic planning office and we were doing all this interesting work on like the future of artificial intelligence like back in 2016 um, worked on the agency's strategic plan that won an international award you know so I was I was getting to do a lot of different kinds of writing um, and you know at the same time I was teaching a class at a university that was a writing class for student veterans and this was at a time when I, I was having students show up on September 1st and they had gotten off a plane from Afghanistan on like August 13th, right? And th- so, you know, this was post-surge. This was a lot of um, especially combat arms coming back. And these were also like 23, 24-year-old guys, almost exclusively guys, um, who were coming to college on the GI Bill and they were coming to a college where their classmates could not find the places that they had been on a map, right? And that huge disconnect between the generation that was going overseas and the generation that was at the mall, right? As the, I think the joke went, right? And so the university where I was teaching, they had this program called the First Year Seminar Program. And it was designed to sort of help acclimate freshmen to the university, teach them the skills that they would need to be successful in college. And it's really kind of a retention effort. Well, they put student veterans through that. And it was like, you know, to have a a 24 year old, like former machine gunner, you know, paired up with someone who's sad that like they haven't figured out the laundry machine, that is just not a great setup. And so I, I was sort of thrown in to a classroom with 20 or so uh, of these, um, these types of students and it and it became my job to sort of help them connect to each other first um, because that can be a very very lonely experience coming out of the service and i'm sure you can relate to that and in you know some way uh shaper i've never met a vet who didn't um experience that to some degree um and so first to connect them to each other and build that community but then help them find ways to to connect with the university and to to be seen and to be understood and there were all these jokes at the time i remember um there was a uh um you might have to jog my memory there was a satirical like 
duffel blog. The, the, did you remember the duffel blog is the satirical kind of news online newspaper. And they made up these articles about the military that you usually had to know something about the military to kind of understand the humor. Um, well, I remember they, they ran a story about how this was right as the school year was starting. They ran a story about how universities were really worried about all these um, combat vets coming home and that the Department of Education had issued guidance on how to prevent um, uh, military veterans from like committing acts of violence on campus. Okay. And if you read the article, it's like, you know, basically all the jokes of like being frustrated with the civilian world and, and, you know, just not being able to, to, to relate to your, your classmates and whatever else. Well, this is the duffel blog. It's not real. And tons of media organizations like pick this up as a story that like the federal government was so worried about military vets, like essentially being ticking time bombs, right? Like they're going to explode and they're going to, they're going to hurt somebody. Right. And that was like at the exact time that I was teaching this class. And, and I remember we, we like, you know, I threw the syllabus out that week and I was like, we're just going to talk about this. Right. Like, you know, and they all thought it was funny at first. And then when the implications started to kind of settle in of like, wait, people thought this was real. And what does that say about people's perceptions? Yeah, like, it's how they see them for real. Yeah. Right. It's how it confirms a, a, a bias that, that was either known or unknown, right, at that time. And so I really, I, I in that moment, I just sort of charged them with like, okay, well, if you don't want to be seen that way, how do you want to be seen? And then they wrote essays about that. And we took those essays and we put that into a book called See Me For Who I Am. And it was this really great opportunity for military vets, student vets to, to really say, hey, your stereotypes do not do not um, register with me, right? Like, here's who I am. Here's what I've been through. Here's what I've learned. Here's how I've grown. So there's these sort of two strands in my life, right? I'm sort of going up the public policy communication kind of ladder, and I'm writing a lot in that space, and I'm doing a lot of teaching all over the country. Um, the GAO sent me to all the different field offices. And then I'm also teaching this class, and I'm getting sort of more ingrained into the um, post-9-11 veteran community, and I'm getting connected to memoir writers and journalists and war reporters and war photographers and I'm learning from them and I'm I'm just sort of you know gathering as much of this information as I can and then I'm like this historian at heart right um and so in 2018 the fall of 2018 the Harris School um posted a position for someone to start a writing program at the at the policy school and it was like oh my god this this these are all the stars aligning, right? It's like, I'm the guy who wrote the book. I would love to build a program. I was sort of, you know, in the federal government, as much as I loved working for GAO, it's a federal bureaucratic red tape filled organization, right? Anybody who's ever worked in the federal government, civilian or military, doesn't matter. They know Um, there's just a certain way things are done and, and it's hard to change. And so I saw you know, 20, 2018, I, I was sort of like, well, I could build something, you know, I could build something and I could, um, you know, teach what I was teaching to like, you know, 3000 analysts at GAO, I could teach that to, you know, 500 students a year. 
that are going to go to 500 different places and are going to know, you know, and that's how, that's how I was really thinking about this. And, um, and it was at that same time that I started working as a columnist for the New York times. And that is a whole lot. We'd have to do a whole other podcast of how that started. Um, but the, the pieces that I was writing for them were pieces about military history or, um, or veteran related history and some present day connection. And so I, I wrote a piece about kind of uncovering my grandfather's World War II story, which was a far more complicated narrative than what he let on and, and explained some things and raised more questions in other ways. And, but it was all sort of looking at truth and, and, and alternative facts, right. And, and these, and, and these sort of buzzwords at the time, and, and it was about memory and about the way that we construct narratives about ourselves and right. And then I, they love that piece. They let me pitch another piece. I got assigned a piece that was looking at uh, posters from world war one. And there, there are these hilarious, but also kind of really cool art deco style posters that the military commissioned that were like posted all over, um, you know, the centers where they were processed out once they got back. And it, you know, the best example I can think of is there's this one where there's this, you know, clearly a GI, right? Like the, the brimmed hat with the tassels, tight uniform, everything is like that art deco straight line, very modern, and then right next to him is this like schlubby dude in his in his suit, his civilian suit, and his hat's all crumpled and right. And he's like, "Hey, want to get a drink?" <laughs> and the soldier's like, "Not while I'm in uniform." That's what that's what the bubble says, right? And it, and so then I'm I'm talking about this way that we as a as a culture right, we shame people constantly, right? We we say like, "Oh, you have a problem. That must mean because you're 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 not good enough, right? If you were just good enough, you wouldn't have that problem." And so I'm I was always kind of tying history back to the to the present time kind of discussions that that were going on. And the same was true with with Ernie Pyle. I I pitched a piece um, about Ernie Pyle for the New York Times for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And this was in 2019. So this is right after I had started at Harris about six months later. Um, And the piece that I wrote was about the fact that Ernie was by far the most famous war correspondent, American war correspondent at the time. And he was also totally sick of war and totally fed up with it and like was was totally convinced that he was not going to survive. And if he did survive, he would crack, he would have cracked up and been sort of a mental case is how he described it. Um, And he gets picked to cover (laughs) D-Day like on the beaches. Right. And through happenstance, something happens with his ship. It goes off course. By the time they get back on course, they've lost their place in the convoy. The invasion's going on without them. And Ernie basically has to watch from, from the bay. Um, or from the channel, I should say. And the next day he shows up and it's very much like he missed the story, right? He, he missed the invasion and he's looking like, what is he going to do? What is he going to say? Because people are going to expect him to write something about this day. And he knew in that moment that this day was going to be a day that would be remembered forever. Right. And so he decides to just walk along the beach 
uh, where, where I, I say where the ocean meets the sand and he walks along this line and it's just this mess of personal gear and, and military gear that's been discarded or been blown off or been, you know, um, swept up in the surf from the invasion. And he, you know, he starts off talking about certain military equipment that he sees, but then the, the items become really, really personal. And he, he finds, you know, letters, uh, letters home that will never be mailed. He finds a pocket Bible that he picks up for some reason and he doesn't know why. And it has the soldier's name in it and he carries it for a while and then gets sort of spooked and puts it back. And he has, he, he has this whole way of sort of describing this scene that almost entirely omits like blood and guts. And, you know, it's not saving private Ryan, right? This is very much, um, you know, it's the next day, the war has moved inland, the story's over there, but Ernie's right here, and this is what he sees, and it and it comes to capture, really, the entire um, experience in, like, you know, 900 words. And it's just this incredible piece that he didn't even think was very good, by the way. He was sort of shocked by the reception of it, um, but it runs in, you know, hundreds of newspapers. It's It completely sells out in in his home paper in dc it's read into the federal registrar like you know people read it on the on the radio it's used to for war bond drives like it just it sort of ignites the country and what i found especially amazing about ernie as i was researching that piece and thinking a lot about his style was how he was able to communicate really hard truths right like he, by doing what he did, he was like, this cost us, right? Like there are thousands of young men that aren't going home now, right? But you can't, you can't write that as a defeatist sort of, you know, it's not worth it. What are we doing, right? He believed it was worth it, but he also didn't want anybody to forget that that's what it cost, right? And so that's what really struck me about his work. So that piece came out, um, it was at a time again where I think the ideas of what is truth and what is real and how do we how do we come up with our understandings of reality again was kind of in vogue. The editor picked a title called uh, what she picked was the man who told the truth about D-Day. Something about the title, something about it being D-Day. That thing took off. I was told it had a million views in the first few hours. It broke all the records for the column. It just resonated with people. I got hundreds of emails, messages. People wrote me letters addressed to the Harris School. I have like a dozen letters probably. People saying, I remember reading Ernie Pyle or my dad talked about Ernie Pyle or my dad met Ernie Pyle. I mean, just tons of people. Like It was clear that people still remembered him and that the way that he wrote was still important today or that there was still something resonant about it today and then a couple days later i got uh an email from an editor at penguin press named scott moyers and he said i read your piece in the times about ernie pyle and i read all the other stuff that you've written for the times and i i just want you to know if you if you're interested in writing a book about ernie let me know because i'd love to you know throw my hat in the ring for that because you know, man, you can write. And so that's, that's how it happened. It was, um, you know, I was starting a writing program at the Harris school from scratch. 
and researching Ernie Pyle in the archives in Indiana and, you know, interviewing experts and sort of doing that on the side. Um, and then the writing program started to take off and Ernie took off and then the pandemic started <laughs> and both sort of, you know, had to take a back seat for a little while. I mean, there wasn't much we could do in either, either case, but um, luckily now, you know, things have, have improved enough that I was able to finish the travel for the book. I, I retraced Ernie's steps uh, through the war. I went to North Africa, Sicily, mainland in Italy, all through France, um, wasn't able to get to the UK or to the Pacific just because of travel issues and restrictions and requirements. Um, but I was lucky enough that I had been to Okinawa uh, back in 2016 doing research for a different project. So at least I had enough, you know, memories and notebooks and sort of pictures and stuff from there to, to be able to write about those scenes as well. But um yeah, when you pitch a travel-related book and then a global pandemic starts, it's it's a little bit nerve-wracking. That you know, I didn't know if they were going to tear up the contract or if they were going to you know say, well, if you can't be done in a year, then then we're we're pulling the plug. But they didn't. They they were they waited. I finished the travel. I think it actually made the book stronger. Frankly, that there was a pandemic because um, a lot of archives were closed. And the archivists like digitized a bunch of stuff that they had never had time to digitize. And so I was able to access a lot of archival materials that I don't know how much they had been reviewed before. Um, but I don't think that if they, well, if they were reviewed, those details, especially the details between Ernie and his wife and Ernie and his editor and his kind of his uh, quasi agent, um, a lot of those details weren't written about before. And so part of me wonders if, you know, it was just the the sort of time again, right? That people I think are are interested and are 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 almost um, they need some kind of explanation for the personal traumas, the community level traumas, the collective traumas, right, that that have been experienced over the last few years. Um, I think there's a much greater appreciation for what journalists go through, um, especially after the like, January 6th insurrection and, and things like that, where suddenly we're going, wait, yeah, how do we get these stories from Ukraine? How do we get these stories from Afghanistan? How do we get these stories from insert wherever? It's like, well, there are people on the ground who are getting shot at and getting, you know, blown up and are, you know, are, are doing that work um, to get the story out. And so I don't, again, I think it's, it's one of those times where, where the reader is interested, I think, in this kind of story, and maybe they hadn't been before, or the people who had written about Ernie before um, didn't think it was relevant or didn't think it, it helped, um, you know, understand who he was as a person and as a journalist. Uh, but for me, it just, it unlocked everything. Was it obvious to you that you had to to uh, travel and retrace the footsteps of Ernie, of, of, of Ernie in order to, to capture his story? And I guess, how did that change your perspective? So you, you wrote on him before you traveled and you wrote, you uh, traveled and wrote the biography. So how did this change your view of him? Yeah, as the, the editor at the Times joked with me. She's like, I can't send you to, to Normandy, but I can send you to Dana, Indiana, which is where Ernie's from. And it's like, I think Dana has a few, maybe a couple hundred people live there. Um, but it is a, 
a very, very cool town for what they have done. And what they have done is they have preserved Ernie's childhood home and they built a really incredible museum. It is, it is a jewel um, in sort of, you know, West Central Indiana. Um, and I'm not just saying that as a huge fan of Ernie Pyle. But uh, yeah, so that was the most travel that I did to write that piece. And then when the, when the editor from Penguin emailed me, part of, part of what he he said after I responded and said, well, actually, I would love to <laughs> write a book about Ernie. Uh, he asked to set up a call. And the first thing he asked me was, well, tell me your vision for this. Like, how would you do it? And at that time, I was really hooked. And I still am. I was really hooked into the style of books that a author named Tony Horwitz was writing. And so Tony Horwitz is probably most famous for writing Confederates in the Attic, uh, which was a book from the late 90s, I think, like, like 97. Um, and basically what he did was he became a Civil War reenactor um, with folks on, in the South, like a Confederate uh, reenactor, to try to understand why the Civil War has such a powerful hold over the South still to this day and to understand sort of how antagonisms and frustrations and and myths and legends and all these things have like boiled in the decades since the the civil war ended and like how it's manifested in present day. And so he goes to all these civil war battlefields, he goes to all these reenactments, he interviews people, um, he attends all these different kind of cultural festivals, you know, um, Sons of the Confederacy, things like that, Daughters of the Confederacy, all with this with this question of just being super curious and saying, like, I just want to understand this. I just want to see, like, what's the allure? What do these stories mean to you? Why are they so powerful? Right. Like that that um, very human centered sort of understanding of, of an issue. And I, I devoured all of his books. Um now, here's where it gets kind of spooky, because I told uh, Scott, the editor at Penguin, I said, you know, I, I would love to do the do what Tony Horowitz would do. Like, I want to retrace his steps. I want to see what's going on there in the present day. I want to talk to people that are in these places and see, like, what's here? What does it look like? Is Does this still impact you any in any way? Like, should Ernie Pyle still matter after all these years, right? And there was this, like, silence about that long right it's just a pregnant pause and he said well you know i was tony's editor now the timing the timing of this is crazy because tony horwitz had died like a week before this conversation very very soon before this conversation he was on book tour he was in dc he was about to do a event he was out for a walk and he i think he it was an aneurysm or some, something happened like and it was like lights out and I swear on all the holy books that I had no idea that Scott and Tony had worked together and that how close they were. And they had like gone to poker games together and they were friends. And, and I don't know how, you know, what stars had to align for this to happen, but Scott was basically sold. He's like, yeah, I'm, I love it. Let's, you know, Tony's not here anymore. There needs to be somebody who does you know, and and I should say that like I was very much inspired by Tony Horowitz, but there are lots of writers who do this, right? Who who do site visits? They go to the places, they interview people, they 
they try to recreate experiences. There are people that are way more hardcore about this than I am, where they're like fully immersed and they'll just be there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Now that would have been great, except I have three kids and I have, and I have a wife that wants me home more often than not. And I also run a writing program at a, at a really amazing graduate school. And so I had to sort of fit these travel pieces into vacations and quarters when I wasn't teaching and summertime. And, you know, obviously the pandemic threw, threw a, a real wrench into that. And, and I think, you know, I learned things about Ernie and about these places and about these battles and about the, the impact that it had on the people around these battles that I could have never in a million years uncovered from my desk in the United States. Um, and so, and, and there, you know, the book is, is full of, of, I would say the most pertinent things that I experienced and learned. Um, and it's not, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but this is much more a biography of Ernie and much less a travel memoir of David Christinger. But like the travel is supposed to, is, is supposed to bring the reader back into the present day and sort of go, and here's, and here's how it is played out. We also know that Ernie didn't do much reporting about civilians because that wasn't his job and he wasn't there to do that. So I wanted to really look at the civilian impact of war and try to understand that. Um, and so I felt like there was enough. The other thing is that Ernie was not, uh, he didn't write much about the strategy or about the big picture. He was much more focused on what he called the worm's eye view of the war, like the, the really you know six inches in front of your face. So between, you know, being able to update the story of the war from from these, you know, present day places, but also put a, a more of a framework around what was happening when Ernie was doing this work, and then being able to include what I learned about the civilian impact and what I learned about Ernie's the impact of Ernie's work on his wife and on on his friendships, then it was like, well, this is this is so clearly how you would do this. Um, and, and it hasn't, you know, the, this, Ernie's been written about plenty. There are several biographies um, of Ernie Pyle. I think this one is the best, <laughs> for lack of a better term, because it presents Ernie as a full three-dimensional human being, right? It, it shows his scars, it shows his flaws, but it shows also how he turns his scars and his flaws into really incredible work. And I think that's the, that's the thing about this story that, that people will really appreciate. And and I think you make it really clear how his personal life affects his professional life and vice versa. And, um, okay. Okay. So I'm wondering, um, was Ernie Pyle, did he just create a new paradigm for journalism for, for wartime journalism? Was this, or was he, was he writing in a new style with his worm's eye view? Um, and yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's my question. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those, it's complicated kinds of answers. So it is, it is true that the frontline correspondent embedded with troops in the front lines telling that perspective, that was a new thing for World War II. World War One was covered by correspondents who couldn't even smell the gunpowder. You know what I mean? So, and, and it was because the military didn't want them there for a lot of reasons. World War II is different, um, and the way that journalists are viewed is different. 
journalists were basically considered quasi staff officers. Like they were, they were members of the military. They wore uniforms. They rode in convoys. They rode on ships. They rode in airplanes. They went along on missions. They ate army food, right? Like they were basically soldiers, except they could leave whenever they wanted. Um, and that was what was kind of crazy about Ernie was he wanted to be a correspondent, but not someone who was going to do that for the whole war. He, he, he really saw being a war correspondent as like something he would do for like six months and then he would go do something else because he was a travel writer. He, he crisscrossed the United States, you know, 30 sometimes and he'd been all over South America and, and this was sort of like he was going to go on a tour of the battlefield. But then when he gets there, he realizes that there are really these kind of two kinds of journalists. There are the journalists who are back in Algiers and they're with like the general staff and the headquarters and they're listening to communiques coming off the wire. They're getting briefings from public affairs officers and they're writing up their their stuff and they're sending it after it's being censored they're sending it home that's going to be a lot of the like you know daily wire kinds of stories right then there were correspondents who would hear the briefing and then decide which unit they were going to go hang out with that day and they would drive out and let's say they hang out with artillery and they you know kind of sniff around and ask a few questions and make a few observations. And then they were driving back to Algiers and sleeping in a hotel and, and sending off their dispatches. And a lot of those dispatches, I can tell you were filled with very purple language about, (laughs) you know, the, the trials and the tribulations of life at the front. And it rang very hollow, I think, especially from this distance, right? 80 years later, So what Ernie figured out to do was to not care about what the story of the day was, right? Like he wasn't trying to beat anybody's deadline, you know, getting a story out from, from a briefing. He also wasn't going to be the go out for a day and come back guy, because that's not how he did his work when he was a travel writer. When he was a travel writer, he really embedded himself long enough to get some stories and then write them up. And so he's, he's basically advanced the, I would say the like frontline embedded soldier um, way of doing things by sort of staying out there longer and living with the troops for weeks at a time. And then once he got, he would call this once he had like gathered enough material then he would go back to some rear base or some headquarters city and he would lock himself in a room and he would write for like a week. So it was this sort of like binge and purge kind of style. He would go out for three weeks a month, get all dirty, come back, <laughs> write it all up, and then send off a huge batch of, of stuff. So so it's like he sort of pushed the frontiers, but it is very it's true to say that the, the kind of worm's eye view, really caring about what the frontline soldiers, what the individual soldiers are going through and what they think. That was very much an Ernie Pyle uh, way of doing things. And he was kind of mocked for it initially, uh, especially by other journalists who were sort of like, oh yeah, if you want to read about what kind of foot cream the soldiers use, just tune into Ernie Pyle's column, right? 
But in North Africa, that's when Ernie's column really started to take off. And he knew that him and his editor knew that there was something different and that people were really um, relating to what he was doing when he went on a brief um, trip to Central uh, Africa where there was this huge um, Air Corps base where they were bringing in supplies constantly. and so he, cause he just needed to get warm. He, he hated being cold. That's like one of the themes of the book is like Ernie hates being cold. Um, he was kind of a small guy. He was kind of frail. Um, didn't have a lot of meat on the bones, right. Is what they would say. And, um, so we went to what's now Congo and, and, um, just to get warm. And while he was, while he was there, he wasn't writing anything. And all of a sudden, people are writing into their newspaper and they're like, we want Ernie, where's Ernie. Right. And, and suddenly, suddenly it didn't feel like this thing that he could kind of step in and out of it. it suddenly, I think for him, it clicked into, well, wait, maybe I, this is what I'm, this is my duty. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and isn't it great that people also like it. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of the start that's, and then, then you get lots of, people trying to emulate that, right? He, he, he became a sort of style and, and lots of people imitated him, but nobody really captured the same, uh, you know, having the same connection with readers. Do you think Ernie's professional experiences leading up to the war made him this way? Or do you think his personal life on uh, his struggles with his wife and divorce and all these complications, do you think that was a driving factor that, that led to his unique writing style? Well, I, I honestly, I think there is, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe this. There's a correlation, we'll call it. There's a correlation between depression and creativity. And I think what, what I mean by that is not everyone who suffers with depression becomes a literary genius, right? But a lot of literary geniuses suffer from depression, So there's something about those two things that, you know, um, allows you, I think when you're not in, in, in the deepest, you know, darkest realms of it, when you're sort of at the top of it, or you're, you're actually feeling pretty good. I think there's a level of empathy that you can reach that maybe someone who hasn't suffered that sort of same depression might struggle to reach. I think he was very tuned into, um, uh, other people's body languages and and the the way they talked and and how they positioned themselves and 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 those those his ability to describe all of these things and to not necessarily put a label on it but to do a lot of showing and not a lot you know not a lot of telling more showing to help you sort of come to come to your own conclusion I think there's something about not knowing, being uncertain, um, struggling with, you know, hope and thinking about the future. I think there's something about that, that puts you in a, in a place where you can, um, you can see things that maybe, you know, a reporter, someone who is younger, doesn't have the same life experience. They're more, you know, maybe untested, they're more gung ho. Life hasn't kind of kicked them down a flight of stairs yet. Maybe they miss some of that stuff because um, they're just not focused on it. So, 
I think too, it, it bears to mention like Ernie was old, you know, he was, he was in his early forties and he, and he looked like he was in his fifties or sixties. He looks, he looks haggard. He looks beat up. I mean, he, he was a heavy drinker. He was a very heavy smoker. Um, he battled illnesses his whole life. He was probably a hypochondriac. Um, like I said, pretty frail. So yeah, he, he lived, he led a hard life and I think it helped him get to a different place and a different level uh, than other folks were able to. Do you, do you think too, um, you, you paint this picture that, that Ernie just longed for this normal life in new, in new Mexico on a ranch with a woman he loves and that loves him back. And he just never had that. And as an aside, you also paint a picture of what you kind of opened the door for the history of the perception of mental health in the, in the U S at least. And we watch his wife just struggle um, and in and out of facilities. And so do you think this, this, uh, longing for a normal life, but he just can't get that. Do you think this, this lack of a normal life led him to, to push it, to push the envelope in the field and to go deeper than maybe he should, he should have perhaps. I'll put it this way. I think there are two, this is my own theory. I think there are two kinds of depressed people there and and when i say ernie was depressed i think he he had depressive tendencies obviously he wasn't you know totally he wasn't in the grips of depression all the time but it was an issue for him um and it clouded his thinking you know he, he had pretty negative uh thought patterns which i totally related to as a as a very self-conscious you know midwesterner uh trying to do my best all the time that i think ernie and i had a lot there were there were lots of parts of Ernie's life that I really related to, um, in terms of his his professional experiences, his relationships, how he approached his work. There there were lots of things I think folks from the Midwest will will, will totally um, appreciate. And um, so so this is my theory: is that some people who struggle with depression it's because they don't know where they belong. They don't know where their home is. They don't know who their tribe is. They are looking for it constantly, but they never find it. And they, and they start to lose hope that they're not gonna find it, right? So that, that's one group. Then the other group are people who know who their tribe is. They know who their people are. They know what they want. They know where home is, but they can't get there. And I think Ernie's the second one. And I think I'm probably more of the first one, right? Where I'm sort of like trying to figure out my way. And I think once Ernie became Ernie Pyle, right? Once he sort of became the face of the infantrymen, the, the face of our boys, quote unquote, overseas, he felt very much trapped by that and, and trapped in, in, a, in a way where like he was not going to give up, but he wanted to constantly, right? He, he wanted to quit around every turn, and, but he always pushed through it. Once the uh, Normandy campaign is over, which I, I, you know, I thought I knew a lot about World War II uh, history before I started this project, but the Normandy campaign is 
I mean, it's it's hard to comprehend. I mean, the the damage and the death toll and the amount of fighting and the amount of bombing. I mean, it was just um, absolutely insane. And Ernie's pretty much done at that point mentally. He's he's decided he can't go on after the liberation of Paris. Um, there's obviously a lot more war in Europe. Uh, the war doesn't end till May the next year. Paris was liberated at the end of August, so you know he he was he didn't see it through to the end in Europe, um, but he he said that if he didn't go home he would crack, and he told his readers that, and I think it was only Ernie Pyle who could do that because everyone sort of knew that Ernie had had done he had gone above and beyond what what others were 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 doing or or what other people were aware at least of what others were doing. Um, and then he gets home and his wife is very sick. Um, this is before the diagnosis of bipolar depression, but um, several mental health uh, folks that I talked to and kind of described some of the behaviors and things that, that we know about Jerry's condition. Uh, Ernie's wife, his name was Jerry, uh, Geraldine. Um, so what we know about Jerry's condition, they figured it was probably bipolar disorder, but there, it could be much more complicated than that. And obviously, you know, trying to diagnose someone from 80 years away and, and having never met them and never, you know, it, it's hard to do. So I tried to just show as much as I could and, and, um, and show that I think really what, what Jerry struggled with was that her and Ernie were a team, you know, when, before the war started, they rode together on his, on his travel column. And Jerry was actually like, like, she was a pretty cool lady. Like she was way ahead of her time. Um, She grew up in Minnesota when she turned 18, she just moved to DC and became a civil servant and was like, you know, living that, 1920s single woman in a big city life and going to parties and you know like i think she was she was ahead of her time in a lot of ways ernie fell madly in love with her and they started dating and he wanted to marry her and jerry did not want to get married she had no interest in being married um and they only did get married because ernie was so worried his folks back in indiana would would you know think unpleasant thoughts about him if they knew he was living in sin um but they they didn't even tell their friends um because jerry wanted to be seen as this very independent um person and so when when she basically gives everything up to be ernie's partner on the road she gives everything up you know she gives up her social circle um she gives up her family uh, for what it is in Minnesota and her sister in, in Denver, they, you know, only sort of check in and see once in a while. Um, she gives up her job. She gives up her own, um, her own artistic endeavors. She was, uh, a writer herself. And there's actually several letters that I've read that Ernie confesses that Jerry was a better writer than he was. And, and there's, you know, probably some, some fair speculation that she might've helped out, in, in especially his early, early years as a writer to kind of punch up his prose a little bit because she was a poet and had a wonderful way with words. Um, she was a piano player, um, but she also struggled with alcoholism and she had depressive moods just like Ernie did. And I think they, they butted heads a lot when they were in their, you know, respective 
depressive states. And then as Jerry got older, um, you know, her reliance on alcohol got heavier and heavier. And at the time when she was starting to get really sick, you know, with alcohol, I think that was around, you know, around the same time her mental health started getting, you know, bad enough that she needed to be institutionalized um, a few times. And then that was around the same time that Ernie was sort of languishing in his career and was looking for a new challenge. And then the war starts, right? And it's sort of, again, this like the stars all aligned essentially because, you know, here's this woman that, that Ernie's madly in love with who, um, also is not very healthy and um and does cannot come with him Uh, not just you know the military won't let her but like physically she cannot and mentally she cannot and he's now you know he becomes this famous person and she's left in the dust and i think not recognizing what impact Ernie has on her and what impact his professional achievements have on her is another part of the story that that was overlooked. So Ernie gets back home and he, he tells Jerry, you know, like I'm done, I'm not going back, but she's not healthy. And, um, he starts to think maybe he should probably go to the Pacific. The Navy was, was very insistent on, on having him cover the Pacific side of the war because they thought the Pacific theater wasn't getting enough media coverage and that people were not paying attention to it. And there were a lot of reasons for that. There there's several histories that have been written about kind of how the war was covered in the Pacific, how different it was. And, you know, I think there was part of Ernie that had no intention of ever going back. And there was a part of him that felt obligated to go back. And there was a part of him that thought, if only Jerry could just be well, then they could sort of escape into the sunset together and, and never, he would never have to write another word for as long as he lived. If he didn't want to and just watch the sunset and enjoy life. And he writes about that so much of like how he just wants to sip gin on his back patio and watch the sunset. Like he, that's all he wants in the world and he can't have it. And when he's home, he's so famous that people are, stopping by his house at six in the morning to shake his hand. And there's a steady stream of cars circling, trying to get a glimpse of him. And there's just no rest for him whatsoever. And Hollywood's making a movie about him. And he's panicked, panicking about how they're portraying the, the soldiers. And he feels like he needs to, to be in more control of that or to at least influence it more. And meanwhile, again, Jerry's being left alone. She's being left to her own devices and she starts to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then Ernie's sort of telling himself, well, you know, Jerry's not, not doing well. I'm clearly making it worse, right? He's, he's, uh, what is, what is, um, what, what, what's that phrase that you learn in, um, in stats about, uh, on the dependent variable? Yeah. I'm blanking right, right now. So Ernie, Ernie is basically saying like, oh, I'm causing her harm, but really it's the fact that he's, not there, you know, he's everywhere else that Jerry sort of, you know, it's getting harder and harder for her. And she eventually attempts to take her own life in a, in a very violent and gory way. And that's sort of like Ernie's 
assigned to Ernie that he should just go to the Pacific, that there's really, there's nothing left for their relationship. Even though he doesn't want to believe that he, he starts to kind of convince himself that going to war would be easier than, than what he was dealing with. So I, when I was doing this research, one thing that kind of dawned on me was that in the beginning, Ernie was sort of trying to escape his, his marriage in some ways and, and escape the, the, what Jerry was going through and what he was going through professionally with this new challenge and the army sort of said, okay, yeah, you can come along. Right. And then by the end of the war, he's like, okay, I'm good now. I, I want to stay home. And they're like, Oh no, no, no. We, that's not how this works. And, and it was that, you know, he got trapped by the war in a way. And this is something after Ernie was killed uh, on April 18th, 1945 during the battle of Okinawa that John Steinbeck later wrote about um, in an unpublished uh, sort of memorial to, to his friend um, because Ernie and John were, were fairly close friends. Um, And, and he basically said that, you know, America had killed Ernie, that his publishers had killed Ernie, um, that his editors had killed him because he had had enough and we wouldn't listen. This is, Sorry to back up for a second. I couldn't help but think that, you know, I have some friends from the military. and This is a common narrative where perhaps going overseas to, to war or whatever makes your personal life worse. And then when you come home, you can't quite get the wheels turning with your personal life. And so then as an escape, you go back to that, which only accentuates the problem back at home. I kind of see some of that with what he's going on. Uh, and... and you know, you would know way better than I would, but it seems like it wasn't completely the pressure of the of the editors. It seems like it was also just his. He was a very hopeful person, but it seemed like uh, he was starting to perhaps lose hope with Jerry, and just thought that maybe you know, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and the people love him. And if he can't have this home life where he's someone, he can at least fill this role of being the uh, journalist that people love. It's kind of how I interpreted it. I I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I I think John Steinbeck was a lot angrier of a person generally than, than Ernie was. And so I think it was probably easy for him to, to sort of rage against the machine, but you're right. Ernie made the decision. Ernie, Ernie was very clear too that. I mean, he was going because he, he didn't have any hope for, for a peaceful life. Um, You know, and at that point he was making so much money and the prospect of him making even more money, right, was so high that I remember when I when I first really started digging into his story, I I was really struck. You know, I thought, well, wait, he like you said, he's won a Pulitzer, he's got two best-selling books, he's in you know 98 of the top 100 markets in the country, millions and millions of people read him six days a week he's got two honorary doctorates, right? I mean, like the, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then add on to that, just money, t- millions of dollars in today's money. And none of it matters. I don't think he cared about the money, did he? That's, that's, that's what I got reading it. Yeah. Well, and he, he bought so, he bought just thousands and thousands of dollars in war bonds. Um, and this was also at a time when, you know, high earners paid a very high percentage in taxes. So I, I, I want to, don't quote me on this, but I, I think I remember reading the number was like 91% was how much like the, the, you know, the most money he was going to make was going to be taxed 91%. It was like, you know, these numbers are crazy compared to today. Um, but he really was kind of a celebrity journalist before there were celebrity journalists. 
And, um, and, and so, you know, there's this, I think there was this initial idea I had of like, well, how, how come it wasn't good enough? Right. Like how come he wasn't satisfied? How come he had all of this things that, you know, any writer would, would probably, you know, betray someone to, to achieve. And he got there and it didn't, it didn't do anything for him. And it, and it didn't change, it didn't change, um, sort of how he viewed himself. He still viewed himself as this sort of, um, you know, he owes it. He can't walk away. If he walks away, he'll hate himself forever. Um, people expect things from him. You know, how, how can he possibly, how can he possibly say, no, I've had enough. Right. And the reality is like other journalists did it, you know, it was possible. It was possible for him to walk away and he probably would have, you know, been forever remembered as an incredible journalist. But the fact that he goes back and he's killed really, I think, catapults him into like a sort of sainthood. Right. He, he was this patron saint that that now we can, you know, sort of put on this pedestal. And so much of the writing about Ernie for so long was really, you know, viewing him as this this hero on a pedestal who, um, you know, has has a, a shining orb around his head um and he was certainly an amazing writer but he was also a flawed human being like all the people he was writing about yeah i'm curious if you know much about where ernie sits in the history of journalism in the sense that he went to the field and he lost his life and so i'm curious if if the military kind of said, okay, we need to chill out with this, this idea of having these, these war correspondents right next to the soldiers and, and what that looks like today in the modern day, are they, are they that close? Are our war correspondents that close to the action or did he kind of set the precedent for like, we, we can't be this as close to the bullets? No, there were, I want to say it was either the, the number is either 26 or 46. I want to say it's 46 journalists were killed during the during world war ii american journalists that's a lot um that's a ton right now remember there were 16 million service members um and you know 450 to 500,000 deaths depending on how you count it um and lots of those journalists were killed at the front lines but lots of them were killed in plane crashes or you know accidents or um, you know, their ship was sunk or, you know, whatever it was. Right. So there, there was a certain amount of danger that was just sort of built into the job and you could, it was possible to be more risk averse as a journalist. Like I said, you could just hang out at the headquarters if you wanted to. Um, same story though. Yeah. Right. Same story every day. And, and you're, you're watching Ernie Pyle come, come in and everyone's, wants to talk to him because he's just been at the front for the last two weeks and you start to go, well, maybe I should do that. You know? So I think, you know, is, is it, is it anyone's, is it Ernie's fault that more journalists were killed? I I would never say that. Um, I don't, I didn't ever came across anything that the military was alarmed by how many journalists were being killed. Um, Now I can tell you more about Vietnam and how things changed between world war two and Vietnam. Um, I'm a little, murkier on on the korean war but one big difference between world war ii and vietnam is that the the journalists during the vietnam war are no longer 
considered part of the war effort, right? They're no longer considered members of the military. They're not quasi staff officers. They're embeds, right? They're, they're journalists that are being put into the field with a unit, but they are not a member of that unit and they are not in any kind of hierarchy and they're not wearing a uniform generally. And this is back in the day too, when the media wasn't so split with left and right, you know, especially World War II. I feel like the story was a story. And I don't know if Vietnam, if, if journalists were still, if they had this, this left, right mentality of reporting on the war, but that's definitely present. Yeah. So during World War II, the military censors everything. And there's nothing that gets out without the military uh, looking at it. Vietnam, that changes. There's no longer the same level of censorship. And and with the differences in censorship and the differences in how journalists, you know, were trying to protect their objectivity, I think you start to see a, um, a changing mission or goal, right? Where Ernie, he did not want the Nazis to win, <laughs> Right. Like he didn't want to write anything that the enemy could use for propaganda. He he didn't you know, he bristled a few times at some censoring that he received, but also, you know, never raised much of a stink about it until he went to the Pacific. Um, It's actually kind of an interesting story. So he was put in with the Navy and he wanted to record the sailors names just like he did with the soldiers names and the Navy wasn't going to let him because of operational security. And so he, and then, so he threatened to, to go to the army in the Philippines where they would let him do that. And then the Navy was like, okay, fine. Okay. You can do it. Um, now that was also very late in the war when, you know, it was pretty clear we were going to win. And so maybe they, you know, gave him a pass cause he was Ernie pile. Um, but uh, so uh, anyway, then you then you look at the Vietnam War, and it's less about how do we report what's happening in the war so that the reader back home will believe in our mission and accept the losses that we're taking, and it becomes more about like where's the accountability for these losses that we're taking or where, you know, why is general Westmoreland saying this, but when we go into the field, we see this and suddenly there's no check on those observations right now. Were there arguably, you know, war crimes committed by American soldiers during world war II? Absolutely. (laughs) Were they written about? No. Were they reported on? No. Um, and, you know, are there military records of these things? Yes, there are, right? Like, th- this, is not a, this is not a secret. So then to, to say, well, you know, the Vietnam War was, you know, My Lai, the My Lai Massacre, and it was, you know, carpet bombing and napalm, and, and you know, that's, that is one part of the war, the indiscriminate shelling, the, the Zippo raids, like these things that also happened during World War II but were reported on and were beamed into people's living rooms, right? And and suddenly you don't have to read Ernie Pyle's dispatch of the, uh, you know, Tet Offensive three weeks after it happens because that's how long it takes to get news out. Instead, you're watching, you know, Way City on fire right now. And now there's no way to manage that. 
effectively, right? There's no way to keep a lid on it. And then fast forward to today, right? And like everybody's got a phone with a camera and and we're not asking people if it's okay to record them, right? And like, the, you know, so so the, the job of the journalist has changed. The, the checks on a, what a journalist can say and do have changed. Um, but there were journalists who were killed in Vietnam. I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there were. Um, and there were lots of journalists who tried to do what Ernie did, right? Live on the front lines, report the, the, the worm's eye view. And that's something that continued, you know, into the first Gulf War and into post 9-11. There were journalists who were embedded in units or embedded on ships or, and, and, you know, I've heard whole, you know, spectrum of experiences, everything from, you know, the journalist who wrote Generation Kill, right? He was basically like adopted into Marine Recon and they really let their guard down with him. And they, that, I mean, that's, that was, that's the Ernie Pyle style, right? Is like be in the Jeep with them or the Humvee, listen to them complain, write down what they say, you know, talk about how they sleep, talk about what they eat, talk about where they poop, right? All that stuff. That's what he was doing in Generation Kill. But suddenly it had this like different sort of conclusion to it, right? It wasn't the boys back home are over here fighting for apple pie, right? It's like, we've got a generation of kids that grew up on shooting games and now they have guns in Iraq. Um, and right, obviously different, different kind of style, but that idea of like being with the troops and seeing it firsthand, I don't think you can report on a war anymore without that perspective. So, so that's one of the lasting legacies for Ernie, for sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I can't help but think that uh, I can't think of, of Ernie's I, I can't help but think of Ernie's work as a type of kind of proto Gonzo journalism in the light. I don't know if, if he inspired Hunter S. Thompson at all, but I can't help but think of that. You know, just well, being... that I, so I, I did this really great fellowship while I was writing this book, um, the Logan Nonfiction Fellowship, and I got to be paired up with Mark Bowden, who wrote Black Hawk Down, as my my mentor. Um, who he read a couple of my chapters and gave me some feedback in the early days. And that was the exact same thing he said on the first call that we had. He was like, he's kind of a gonzo journalist, wasn't he? He's like, yeah, he, he played the part. He, he really did. And, and, you know, there are even things like um, he wouldn't write things down. He kept a notebook with him and he would kind of fill in notes if he was by himself, but he would never whip out his notebook and start writing notes. You know, he's there were no tape recorders back then for him to do that, but he he very much wanted to be a fly on the wall. And then he did certain things like he always had toilet paper. He always had a fingernail clipper. He always had like a big spoon and, you know, um, a toothbrush and like stuff that humanized him, but also stuff he could lend people. Right. Like I and and I laugh when I think of the fingernail scissors or clippers, because like I've been on hiking trips, like with a bunch of friends and like I'm the person who brought the fingernail clippers. Right. And like, everyone's like, oh, thank God, someone brought fingernail clippers. So he found this way of kind of ingratiating himself and and being a fly on the wall. And he didn't do a lot of talking. He mostly listened. Um, right. And and I think a lot of times soldiers let their guard down around him and 
I think it would be amazing to somehow download all the stuff that Ernie saw and heard and did that he could never write about because I think it would fill volumes. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I think like the reporting we do have from him and it's a lot cause he wrote six days a week. Um, but it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. So I guess to kind of wrap it up a little bit, what has his legacy been? You touched on it a little bit. Um, personally, I'm not really in the space of journalism. I didn't know much about him, but do journalists still to this day, like see him as an icon in this, in this realm, or is he gone in, in waves of kind of losing fame in that space? I mean, how would you explain that? Well, his, his image has sort of, you know, there's been ebbs and flows. Like there, there was a, you know, especially during the Vietnam war, there were critics of him that said, you know, the kind of reporting that he did during the war was basically propaganda. And the thing is like, I don't know that Ernie would have disagreed with that. Right. I mean, if, if you define propaganda as basically telling your side of the story to influence your, your constituency, right. I mean, maybe he was a propagandist and, and, you know, there's a part in the book where I basically say like, it's not even the interesting question. You know, the interesting question is how did he do what he did? That for me, the how question is way more important. So there were, there were those who saw him as kind of a propagandist. Then he, he goes through kind of a different, uh, there's a different lens put on him towards the 50th anniversary of World War II, the end of World War II. And this is around the same time, you know, Saving Private Ryan's coming out, Band of Brothers is coming out, the Tom Brokaw's Greatest Generation is coming out. Um, There's the Enola Gay fight over displaying the plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and the history wars over, you know, how we represent World War Two, and and Ernie's again brought up as this like he's the the soldier scribe who you know wrote the letters home and and then you know I think after nine eleven um, there was again well I should say not after not after nine eleven but I'd say probably you know a couple years into the Iraq War where suddenly the paradigm's moving again away from telling the frontline soldiers story to like, how did Abu Ghraib happen? You know, and, and why are we still here? And, you know, why do we keep being told that the war is about to end and then there's another uprising or there's another surge or, or what, and it's, and then you start seeing all these articles and books about is Iraq the next Vietnam? Is Afghanistan the next Vietnam? Is Afghanistan the next Iraq? Is Iraq the, you know, like this sort of narrative again of like, well, military leadership has totally, you know, screwed the pooch here and all they're doing is lying. And so the journalist's job is to uncover all the lies, uncover all the, the, you know, Stanley McChrystal saying bad things about president Obama behind his back. You know, those sorts of stories again are, are coming out. And I think, you know, this, this ties um, into um, the topic of a, of a white paper that I, I helped Right, co-wrote with a couple of Harris students um, based on the types of coverage that the military and, and the veteran space received in the United States. And then the numbers are are abysmal, right? It's like less than 5% of news stories are about the U.S. military, veteran, sort of foreign policy-related issues. Um, meanwhile, you know, the Department of Defense and the VA have about a trillion-dollar budget a year, 
um, the DODs never passed an audit, right? I mean, there's there's trillions of dollars unaccounted for in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, just in those two places. And so there is clearly a need for accountability and there's a need for, um, you know, holding institutions and holding leadership to account. But when there aren't stories of how soldiers or Marines or, or, or whoever, you know, military service members you're talking about sailors, um, that they are serving every day. They are on, they're on missions every day. There are lots of things that they do that we have no idea about because there aren't any journalists there and they're not allowed to write about it. And, you know, and, and all the, you know, and the level of secrecy around the military has gone way up. It's very, very hard to get an embed position as a as a journalist now. Um, public affairs officers are everywhere, right? There's a lot of sort of image management and story management and sort of making sure that your you know your narrative comes out first, and 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 journalists are seen more as adversaries in that way. And and you know I don't think. Um, I don't think Ernie would recognize that landscape. I think that would be, that would be, you know, a total 180 for him. But I sometimes wonder, you know, what would, what would Ernie do if he was around right now, you know, with Ukraine and Russia or, you know, would, would Ernie figure out a way to, to get into, you know, one of these American bases in the Philippines or in, um, you know, the South Pacific that are, are ratcheting up to to counter a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. I mean, would he be there? Would he be, um, you know, with with the drone operators in Las Vegas and watching what they do, um, you know, or in Nevada? You know, would he be in Syria with National Guard artillerymen? You know, firing into, uh, you know a war that's been going on for who knows, you know, it's for a really long time. I mean, where would he be? There, there's the military footprint is so huge, right? How, how, how could we possibly have the kind of understanding that readers had back then when there aren't any Ernie piles, first of all, and, and if, and if there, if we did have them, we'd need a hundred or a thousand of them just to be able to understand all the things that are going on. Um, it's too much for any one person. It's kind of complicated too, because I personally saw, based on your book, I saw Ernie as kind of a patriot. And it's definitely like, if you're going to be a journalist now in the space of, you know, on the ground with the military, they, they, they do kind of see you as an opposing force, you know? And so you're, you're, you're kind of tearing down the, you, you're not actually tearing down the military, but that's how the military is going to see yeah. you, how your country's going to see you, like leftists, well, you know? Um, Sebastian Younger uh, wrote a really great book about the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan um, called War, and he was embedded with uh, some airborne troops there. And I I don't remember the amount, but he would go there for sort of a month or two at a time, and I think he did a few different trips. Um, And he writes about in War that the second someone thinks that you have an angle or that you're trying to sort of uncover a story, you are so frozen out that you will never, you'll never get a story. And so what he had to do was do what Ernie Pyle does, right? Like hang around and watch him wrestle. And, you know, like, and then you watch the, you watch the documentary Restrepo 
And I, I think if Ernie watched that, I think he would recognize himself in Sebastian Younger. I think he'd say, yeah, that's what I did. I went on patrol with them. I hiked to the same mountains they hiked. I slept in the same bunks they slept in. You know, I, I took cover behind the same berms that they took cover behind. You know, and, and he has in that book a real insight into, I think, a lot of the emotional parts of what it means to go to war and to come home. And again, that was that was something Ernie was doing, you know, back in back in the forties. Yeah. David, I want to say I really appreciate you weaving in your own story into this story. You know, it's more than just a biography of Ernie. It's also kind of your biography in a, in a minor yeah, way. Got a little memoir yeah. to it. Yeah, definitely. And so what would you recommend to someone like me and many listeners who who want to capture stories in an effective way like you did? Good one. I So one thing that I always do, when, especially when I am – doing a site visit or I'm doing on the ground research or I'm um, visiting with someone is I will write down all the details I can remember everything, even if it's something small, because I never really know what detail I will need. And there are times when I'll be with someone and I'll think, Oh my gosh, that that's a quote. I'm, I got to use that. They, what they just said, amazing. But it's almost always the thing they do with their arm or their hand or the way they sit in their chair or the way, you know, the direction they turn to look while they're saying it that really cements the scene and, and gives it that power to where I don't have to tell you that someone feels ashamed or someone feels excited or someone feels bored or someone, you know, feels nervous. You feel it because you're almost putting yourself in that position and you're seeing through my eyes, right? You're seeing how someone is comporting themselves or how they're moving. And that's a way more powerful tool than telling someone you know, he was nervous or he was scared or, or whatever. And, and I think the best way to think about this is not, not to say, you know, show, don't tell there, there's a balance and a amazing writer, friend of mine, Brian Kastner explained this to me once. And he said, the best way to think about it is you have narration, which is, you know, this happened and then that happened and then that, that happened, right. Beginning, middle, end, you have summation, which is, here's what that meant, right? And then you have reflection. Here's how I feel about that. Now, you have to find the right balance for your audience because if you have all narration and no reflection, somebody's going to go, uh, cool story? Like, what? why did you tell me all those things? What does that mean, right? But if it's all reflection, very little narration, someone's going to be like, wow, you have a lot of opinions without any support for them whatsoever, right? And so it's it's a balancing act of, you know, when do I point out, hey, you should really pay attention to this? When do I speed up? Because you don't really need to know all of that. I'm just kind of filling in some details. Where are the right scenes to show the thing that you want to show? There, there are scenes in this book that I've never read in any other um, biography or any other article about Ernie. And I, and I, you know, I'm shocked sometimes where I think, 
why wasn't this, why didn't anyone else think this was important? Right. There's a, the scene in the book that I think is a real pivot moment for Ernie. And I promise this won't spoil it. If you, you know, want, want to keep reading uh, this book is he's in Sicily and he's sick and he's at a, a medical tent and he's recuperating and they bring in the, some orderlies bring in a soldier on a cot who is not going to make it. It's very clear. And this priest comes running into the tent and he administers the last rites. And Ernie is right next to this guy. And I'm even getting chills while I'm telling this story. It's a very powerful story. And he, he thinks I, I should go down there. I should hold his hand. I should be with him. And then he stops himself and he says, no, that wouldn't be appropriate. I don't know this man. Like someone's going to think I, I'm, I don't, I shouldn't do this. It's not okay. And then the man dies and Ernie says that's the biggest regret of his life, that he didn't hold that man's hand. And I think, again, that's one of those moments where he's hooked. He can't leave now, <laughs> right? He, he, has, he has gone through things that he's not going to be able to make sense of. Um, and it makes more sense to be with people who have had those experiences and who you don't have to explain it to. But then he has this added you know, pressure of having to explain it. But part of me wonders too, like maybe that was helpful to him in some way to kind of process it as he was going through it. Um, I'd say, you know, if you're interested in in reading more about the the sorts of ways to to do this kind of writing, I think the best way to do it is to read the people who do it well. You know, Sebastian Younger is on that list. Um, Tony Horowitz, obviously, on that list. Um, my friend Brian Kastner is very much um, like that. Uh, he does a lot of books where you have to kind of go to the place and see it and feel it and uh, and and um, you know put it in into a context. Um, I could go on, but I think it's it's about reading those kinds of books and just going like, oh, I see what they did there. You know, I see how they how they brought that full circle, and that's that's what I tried to do. How can people get a hold of this thing? How can they get your book? Well, it's uh, it's available for pre-sale right now. Um, this is uh, March 23rd. It hits shelves May 30th. If you're thinking, oh, I'll wait till it hits shelves, just know that if you pre-order it, that's, ev- that's the best thing you can do to support an author because what that does is it shows the publisher that there's some energy behind the book and then they're more likely to help promote the book it's kind of counterintuitive, right? You'd think, oh, let's put more marketing behind books that nobody knows about. No, actually, it's the opposite. It's like the more people pre-order it, the more attention it gets. Um, but it will, it'll it'll hit, hit bookshelves everywhere on May 30th. And right now we're planning the book tour. And so far, uh, I'll definitely be in Washington, D.C. I'll be in Miami. Um, I'll be in Bloomington. I'll be in Albuquerque and uh, Chicago and Madison, Wisconsin, and a few other places. Um, but all that information will be available on my website, davidchristinger.com, um, and uh, probably on the, the Penguin Press website as well. Excellent. So then after all this, what is next for you? 
Well, um, I've always be, I'm always warned um, by my writer friends to not talk about my writing projects too much because they'll somehow lose the energy. But I don't know. That doesn't ever seem true for me. Um, <laughs> I like to talk about I have I have probably way too many ideas. Um, but the next one that I'm I'm sort of, you know, putting a lot of effort into and I'm feeling really good about is is a, a project about John Steinbeck. And, and part of it was inspired by his friendship with Ernie. Um, and I, I started digging into Steinbeck's story in, and I think I've got an interesting way to, uh, to talk about his life and his writing. He's a different character than, than uh, Ernie. So I've gathered yes. so far. Yes. Yeah. And, and also, you know, has, has some, uh, you know, some parallels with Ernie but yes, definitely diverges in certain ways. And, and he's got a fascinating story about, you know, he was a war correspondent during World War II. He went to Ukraine in 1947 with Robert Kappa after the war and like, you know, to see what, see what the war had done to Ukraine. A lot of, a lot of those pieces are pretty, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's just incredible to, to think that the Ukrainians have been invaded twice you know, in a century, uh, you know, full-scale invasions and how many millions of people there have been killed and displaced in those two. And and the fact that people that were alive for the first are still alive for the second, it just is mind-boggling. Um, and, you know, and he had all these amazing relationships and he had three marriages and um, he had a pretty complicated relationship with his son. So there's lots, there's lots to, uh, his two sons. Um, so there's a lot to unpack with Steinbeck, but I'm, I'm having fun with that right now. Well, I just want to say, I really enjoyed reading this. It was, it's, it's a biography, but it's a lot more than, than that. It's a reflection on journalism, on history, on the human experience. And I appreciate your work a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say.